Appendix four, section six of On War, volumes two and three by Karl von Clausewitz, translated by J. J. Graham. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Timothy Ferguson. Character of command, five hundred and sixty-four. We have said that there is a difference between the character of the determinations which form the plan and those which form the conduct of a battle. The cause of this is that the circumstances under which the intelligence does its work are different. 565. This difference of circumstances consists in three things in particular, namely in the want of data, in the want of time, and in danger. 566. Things which, had we a complete view of the situation, and of all the great interrelations, would be to us of primary importance, may not be so if that complete view is wanting. Other things, therefore, and as a matter of course, circumstances more distinct, then become predominant. 567. Consequently, if the plan of a combat is more a geometrical drawing, then the conduct or command is more a perspective one. The former is more a ground plan, the latter more of a picture. How this defect may be repaired, we shall see hereafter. 568. The want of time, besides limiting our ability to make a general survey of objects, has also an influence on the power of reflection. It is less a judicial, deliberative, critical judgment than mere tact, that is, a readiness of judgment acquired by practice, which is then effective. This we must also bear in mind. 569. That the immediate feeling of danger to ourselves and others should influence the bare understanding is in human nature. 570. If then the judgment of the understanding is in that way fettered and weakened, where can it fly for support? Only to courage. 571. Here plainly courage of a twofold kind is requisite, courage not to be overpowered by personal danger, and courage to calculate upon the uncertain, and upon that to frame a course of action. 572. The second is usually called courage of the mind, courage de esprit. For the first, there is no name which satisfies the law of antithesis, because the other term just mentioned is not, in itself, correct. 573. If we ask ourselves, what is courage in its original sense, it is personal sacrifice in danger. And from this point we must also start, for upon it everything rests at last. 574. Such a feeling of devotion may proceed from two sources of quite different kinds. First, from an indifference to danger, whether it proceeds from the organism of the individual, indifference to life, or habituation to danger, and secondly, from a positive motive, love of glory, love of country, enthusiasm of any kind. 575. The first only is to be regarded as true courage which is inborn or has become second nature, and it has this characteristic that it is completely identified with the being, therefore never fails. 576. It is different with the courage which springs from positive feelings. These place themselves in opposition to the impressions of danger, and therefore all depends naturally on their relation to the same. There are cases in which they are far more powerful than indifference to the sense of danger. There are others in which it is the most powerful. The one, indifference to danger, leaves the judgment cool and leads to steadfastness. The other, feeling, makes men more enterprising and leads to boldness. 577. If with such positive impulses the indifference to danger is combined, there is then the most complete personal courage. 
578. The courage we have as yet been considering is something quite subjective. It relates merely to personal sacrifice and may on that account be called personal courage. 579. But now it is natural that any one who places no great value on the sacrifice of his own person will not rate very high the offering up of others who in consequence of his position are made subject to his will. He looks upon them as property which he can dispose of just like his own person. 580. In like manner, he who through some positive feeling is drawn into danger will either infuse this feeling into others, or think himself justified in making them subservient to his feelings. 581. In both ways, courage gets an objective sphere of action. It both stimulates self-sacrifice and influences the use of the forces made subject to it. 582. When courage has excluded from the mind all over-vivid impressions of danger, it acts on the faculties of the understanding. These become free because they are no longer under the pressure of anxiety. 583. But it will certainly not create powers of understanding where they have no existence. Still less will it beget discernment. 584. Therefore, where there is a want of understanding and of discernment, courage may often lead to very wrong measures. 585. Of quite another origin is that courage which has been termed courage of the mind. It springs from a conviction of the necessity of venturing, or even from a superior judgment, to which the risk appears less than it does to others. 586. This conviction may also spring up in men who have no personal courage, but it only becomes courage, that is to say, it only becomes a power which supports the man, and keeps up his equanimity under the pressure of the moment, and of danger, when it reacts on the feelings, awakens and elevates their nobler powers. But on this account the expression courage of the mind is not quite correct, for it never springs from the intelligence itself. But that the mind may give rise to feelings, and that these feelings by the continued influence of the thinking faculties may be intensified, everyone knows by experience. 587. Whilst, on the one hand, personal courage supports and by that means heightens the powers of the mind, on the other hand, the conviction of the mind awakens and animates the emotional powers. The two approach each other and may combine, that is, produce one and the same result in command. This, however, seldom happens. The manifestations of courage have generally something of the character of their origin. 588. When great personal courage is united to high intelligence, then the command must naturally be nearest to perfection. 589. The courage proceeding from convictions of the reason is naturally connected chiefly with the incurring of risks in reliance on uncertain things and of good fortune, and has less to do with personal danger, for the latter cannot easily become a cause of much intellectual activity. 590. We see, therefore, that in the conduct of the combat, that is, in the tumult of the moment and of danger, the feeling powers support the mind, and the latter must awaken the powers of feeling. 591. Such a lofty condition of soul is requisite if the judgment without a full view, without leisure, under the most violent pressure of passing events, is to make resolutions which shall hit the right point. This may be called military talent. 592. If we consider a combat with its mass of great and small branches, and the actions proceeding from these, it strikes us at once that the courage which proceeds from personal devotion predominates in the inferior region, that is, rules more over the secondary branches, the other more over the higher. 593. The further we descend the order of this distribution, so much the simpler becomes the action, therefore the more nearly common sense becomes all that is required. 
but so much the greater becomes the personal danger, and consequently personal courage is so much the more required. 594. The higher we ascend in this order, the more important and the more fraught with consequences become the action of individuals, because the subjects decided by individuals are more or less those on which the whole is dependent. From this it follows that the power of taking a general and comprehensive view is the more required. 595. Now, certainly the higher position has always a wider horizon, overlooks the whole much better than a lower one. Still, the most commanding view which can be obtained in a high position in the course of an action is insufficient, and it is therefore also chiefly there where so much must be done by tact of judgment and in reliance on good fortune. 596. This becomes always more the characteristic of the command as the combat advances, for as the combat advances, the condition of things deviates so much the further from the first state with which we were acquainted. 597. The longer the combat has lasted, the more accidents, that is, events not calculated upon, have taken place in it. Therefore, the more everything has loosened itself from the bonds of regularity, the more everything appears disorderly and confused here and there. 598. But the further the combat has advanced, the more the decisions begin to multiply themselves. The faster they follow in succession, the less time remains for consideration. 599. Thus it happens that by degrees, even the higher branches, especially at particular points and moments, are drawn into the vortex, where personal courage is worth more than reflection, and constitutes almost everything. 600. In this way, in every combat, the combinations exhaust themselves gradually, and at last it is almost courage alone which continues to fight and act. 601. We see, therefore, that it is courage and intelligence elevated by it which have to overcome the difficulties that oppose themselves to the execution of command. How far they can do so, or not, is not the question, because the adversary is in the same situation. Our errors and mistakes, therefore, in the majority of cases, will be balanced by his. But that which is an important point is that we should not be inferior to the adversary in courage and intelligence, but above all things, in the first. 602. At the same time, there is still one quality which is here of great importance. It is the tact of judgment. This is not purely an inborn talent, it is chiefly practice which familiarises us with facts and appearances, and makes the discovery of truth, therefore a right judgment, almost habitual. Herein consists the chief value of experience in war, as well as the great advantage which it gives an army. 603. Lastly, we have still to observe that if circumstances in the conduct of war always invest what is near with an undue importance of that which is higher or more remote, this imperfect view of things can only be compensated for by the commander, in the uncertainty as to whether he has done right, seeking to make his action at least decisive. This will be done if he strives to realise all the possible results which can be derived from it. In this manner, the whole of the action, which should always, if possible, be conducted from a high standpoint, where such a point cannot be attained, will at least be carried in some certain direction from a secondary point. We shall try to make this plainer by an illustration. When in the tempest of a great battle, a general of division is thrown out of his connection with the general plan, and is uncertain whether he should still risk an attack or not, then, if he resolves upon making an attack, in doing so the only way to feel satisfied, both as regards his own action and the whole battle, is by striving not merely to make his attack successful, but also to obtain such a success as will repair any reverse which may have in the meantime occurred at other points. 604. 
such a course of action is called, in a restricted sense, resolute. The view, therefore, which we have here given, namely, that chances can only be governed in this manner, leads to resolution, which prevents any half-measures, and is the most brilliant quality in the conduct of a great battle. End of Appendix 4, Section 6 Recording by Timothy Ferguson, Gold Coast, Australia End of On War, Volumes 2 and 3, by Carl von Clausewitz Translated by J. J. Graham